Have you ever turned to someone at the end of a film and said, that was a rubbish ending? We like things to end well. Uh, that's how we're made. And the end of the Bible story, uh, the climax of human history, it won't disappoint us. In it, our desires for a happy ending will finally be fulfilled. It will be our true happily ever after it, after. Uh, And in this book of Revelation, we see God's great plan for his people throughout history finally come to a glorious conclusion. There are, of course, prophecies throughout the Bible about how the story will end, uh, but these are, are picked up on and fleshed out Uh, most of all when the apostle john is given a great vision by the lord jesus which uh, john writes down and which we today call the book of revelation it's one of the books of the bible which is hardest to understand and one of the most debated and so before we get to how god's great plan ends Uh, We're going to think firstly about how we should approach this book of Revelation. Uh, So we'll begin this morning with two things to remember when reading the book of Revelation. Uh, Two things to remember when reading the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one is that it was written to be of practical help for suffering Christians. Uh, It was written to be of practical help for suffering Christians Uh, which is, uh, I suppose, the opposite of it was written to be uh, purely theoretical information for Christians who who don't have anything else to do than than debate theories about the end of the world. Uh, I wonder, do you pay much attention to the little instruction leaflets that come with medicines? Uh, for most of us, maybe the, the first thing we take them out of the packet, we, we, we threw them out. Uh, but perhaps if, if you've had children, uh, you, you might have paid closer attention to those little leaflets uh, because you want to make sure that you're giving them the right dose at the right time of day and so on. Uh, and so you can end up reading that little piece of paper very carefully. But compare that to, say, a medical journal. Uh, There are no doubt articles in medical journals that discuss those sorts of medicines. The authors perhaps debate the theories behind them. They talk about medical trends and so on. And to a certain type of person, those journal articles will be very interesting. But from a practical point of view, they're not much use. If you want help with practical questions about how to actually use the medicine the journal article isn't going to help you. And some people treat the book of Revelation more like a medical journal than an instruction leaflet. They'll debate it, they'll read up on different theories, but they don't expect Revelation to be of much practical help for, for life uh, as we finish out 2023. They don't come to this book looking for advice as to how to live Monday through Saturday. But the third verse of the whole book alerts us to the fact that the Holy Spirit didn't intend to give us a a theoretical book that has no relevance to our day-to-day lives. 
Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Uh, So uh, the Holy Spirit expects us to be able to, uh, to hear and to keep what is written in this book. Jesus said something very similar in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 28. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Uh, again, uh, contrasting with those who would hear the word of God and not do anything with it. So this is a book for, uh, a book not just for our heads, but a book to be lived out. Uh, the book of Revelation, it's not like a helicopter uh, way up in the sky that we might look at uh, and we might think that's interesting uh, and debate what sort of helicopter it is. Is it, is it, is it the army? Is it going to the hospital? Uh, what is it? Where, where did it come from? Where is it heading? The, the book of Revelation is more like a helicopter that lands in our back garden. Because if, if a helicopter lands in our back garden, then it's no longer just something of minor interest that we can look at or not look at. It's something which is actually going to affect life right here and now. So this is a book which is to be of practical use. And in particular, it's a book to be of practical use for suffering Christians. Revelation was written towards the end of the first century when Christians were facing increasing persecution under a number of Roman emperors. In the ninth verse of the book, John calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That word tribulation describes distress and affliction. In chapter 2, John includes a letter sent from Jesus to the church in Smyrna, which says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation. In fact, we know the book was written to people who were even going to be martyred for their faith, because Jesus goes on to say, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So it's written to Christians who already were or who soon would be experiencing tribulation. In other words, who would be suffering for their faith. There's a common idea that Revelation was written just for people living in the the last few decades of human history. But it's actually written to uh, men and women living in modern day Turkey at the end of the first century. In the fourth verse of the book, John tells us who he's writing to. He says, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So John wrote to seven real churches with real problems in the first century. That doesn't mean the book is only relevant to those seven churches, because seven is also a symbolic number. Uh, These Uh, Seven churches, they they represent all the churches from the first century right down to our own day. But this was a book that the people in those first seven churches would have understood and which would have encouraged them, which would have challenged them, which would have rebuked them. And it's to do the same for us. 
Uh, so Revelation, it's not uh, simply a book for people living at the very end of human history. But then the second of our two principles for understanding the book of Revelation is that it's written in picture language which the Old Testament helps explain. So it's written in picture language which the Old Testament helps explain. There's no doubt that much of Revelation is written in a way that is strange to us. You even just need to look through some of the chapter titles in uh, your, your Bible to see that. Chapter 12 is entitled The Woman and the Dragon. Chapter 13 is The First Beast. Chapter 15, Seven Angels with Seven Plagues. Chapter 17, The Great Prostitute and the Beast. Very strange uh, language to us, but, but not so much uh, when these words were first written. This was uh, quite a, 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 an ordinary way of writing uh, around the, the time that Jesus lived, uh, before his time, after his time as well. It's also language which isn't that different from the Old Testament prophets. If we're familiar with the Bible, we're used to reading this sort of language in the likes of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Zechariah. Uh, but what we're not used to is finding it in the New Testament. So why use picture language? Why can we just be told uh, really clearly and straightforwardly? Uh, well, there are a number of reasons for start, the Christians in the Roman Empire were already being persecuted. If John writes to them and says, don't worry, the Roman Empire isn't going to last. Well, how is that going to go down when the Romans read it? It was just going to add fuel to the fire. But then think about it. If that had been written clearly... And we read it today and it tells us, don't worry, the Roman Empire is going to last. Well, we say, well, well, I wasn't actually worried about the Roman Empire. Uh, so the picture language means that it's always relevant. Uh, one of the best-selling books ever written is The Lord of the Rings. It was written in the 1930s and 40s in England, but it's set in a fantasy universe. And so it never seems dated if the Lord of the Rings had been set in pre-World War II England, a lot of it would soon have been out of date. But instead, the book teaches timeless lessons about courage, friendship, betrayal, and so on. Whereas we could read today a novel written 10 or 15 years ago, and, and it seems so out of date when they talk about what phones they're using, and so on. Revelation is also written in picture language because it describes the indescribable. It describes things from heaven's perspective. Imagine trying to explain electric light to a remote tribe living in a jungle. It's not that they're not intelligent, but you'd have to speak in a language that they could understand. And you could say something like, a, a powerful spirit runs along these vines. Uh, that's, that's the electric current. Uh, a powerful spirit runs along these lines so that a little sun lights up inside your hut. Uh, the little sun being the light bulb. 
the Apostle Paul had a vision where he was taken into heaven and he found it impossible to describe what he had seen. We just don't have the, the language to be able to do so. And so when Revelation talks about dragons and horsemen and beasts and prostitutes, it, it might be strange, but at least we can understand it or, or we can picture it. So Revelation is written in picture language. But it is picture language that the Old Testament gives us the key for. Uh, some ha have added up nearly 700 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So 128 allusions to Isaiah, 99 to the prophets, or, or to the Psalms, 92 to Ezekiel, 82 to Daniel, and so on. Uh, modern readers have come up with many fanciful interpretations of Revelation because they look for symbols that someone living in the 20th century or 21st century would be familiar with. Uh, and so they imagine that, that Revelation is talking about American helicopters or, or the Russian military or so on. But those things would have meant nothing to, to the first century readers. Rather, the language that they were familiar with or, or which they would have become familiar with as they were converted and began to read the Old Testament was the Old Testament. Uh, so it's not actually possible, as we saw earlier on in this series, it's not actually possible to understand properly the first chapter in any of the four Gospels if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. And if that's the case for the four Gospels, which, which we find a lot more straightforward to read, uh, then it makes sense that it would also be true for Revelation. Though if we were to sit down this afternoon and read through the book of Revelation, how many of these 700 references would we understand? And so a lot of problems with the interpretation of Revelation are due to lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. Uh, so, with those things in mind, we come this morning to our second main point, which is what the kingdom of God looks like in Revelation. What the kingdom of God looks like in Revelation. Well, we come uh, for uh, the last time in this series to these four familiar categories of God's people, God's place, God's rule and God's blessing. And we're going to start today with God's rule because it's at the centre of the book of Revelation. So starting with God's rule and then looking more briefly at people, place and blessing. So God's rule. Watching planes taking off and land at a busy airport could be a terrifying thing. Every few seconds another plane uh, lifts off or touches down. Planes uh, look like they come within metres of each other. It looks like chaos. It looks like it's only a matter of time before one crashes into another. But imagine if you're thinking that and then someone takes you to the control tower. You see that things aren't happening randomly after all. Despite what it looks like, someone is in control. Well, in many ways, that's, that's the message of the book of Revelation. Despite what life on earth looks like, 
despite what your individual life might look like, someone is in control. John writes to people who are being persecuted. It looks like so many things are going wrong. It looks like Jesus isn't powerful enough to stop his people being killed. But, but the book of Revelation is like Jesus, is like God pulling back the curtain and showing uh, that he is in complete control. It's showing that we don't need to panic. Throughout the Bible, uh, we've seen that God rules. Uh, but those being persecuted or killed for their faith in the first century might have wondered if God had taken his hands off the wheel. Maybe God has stopped paying attention. But 46 times the book of Revelation talks about God's throne. That's more than twice in every chapter. 46 times Revelation talks about God's throne and that throne is never empty. And so each of those 46 times the message is don't panic, God is still on the throne. No matter what it looks like out there, no matter if it looks like complete chaos and carnage, God is on the throne. Perhaps you look out in the world today and all you see is hostility to Christianity in the government, in the media, in schools. You see declining churches. You worry about the future. The book of Revelation tells you that God is on the throne. Of course, that doesn't mean that things are going to suddenly become easier. Uh, the fact that God was on the throne wasn't going to stop some of John's first readers being executed even for their faith. But it did mean that their suffering wasn't meaningless, that it wasn't random, uh, and neither is yours. Your suffering as a Christian, it is not meaningless, it is not random. Revelation also tells us that the suffering of God's people will have an end point. In chapter 6 verse 10 we hear that those who have been slain for their faith cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That would have strengthened John's first readers to keep going. It should strengthen us as well. Yes, suffering is real. Uh, that's something that's clear in Revelation. But that suffering will also come to an end. It's important also to notice who is exactly on the throne. In Revelation 22 verses 1 and 3, it's the throne of God and the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? The Lamb is Jesus. So, boys and girls, if anyone ever comes and knocks on your door and says that Jesus isn't God, here in Revelation there's one throne and it's the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's the throne of God and Jesus because Jesus is God. The, son, the, the Father, the Son and the Spirit, they are one God. They are equal in power and glory. And that means that what a person thinks about God can be seen in how they react to Jesus. To put it simply, if, if someone doesn't have time for Jesus, they don't have time for God. 
If someone refuses to trust in Jesus, uh, they refuse their only way of getting right with God. The book of Revelation pictures Jesus on the throne of the universe. Uh, So not to believe Jesus, love him, trust him, serve him, live for him, is to fight against the reason the universe exists. And the book of Revelation makes clear that all who oppose Jesus' rule will be destroyed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says of Jesus, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Uh, The book of Revelation proclaims a complete and total victory of the Lamb. But it won't be a victory if his enemies are allowed to go unpunished. There's a popular idea in Christian circles that hell is where God isn't. That people who've rejected God on earth will be punished uh, by facing an eternity away from God in hell. But that's not true. There is no place that you can go where you're outside God's presence. Instead, those in hell will experience the angry presence of Jesus. Revelation 14.10 They will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And it will be an eternal punishment. A punishment which goes on forever and ever with no chance of it ending. The next verse says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It is a solemn truth. It is not pleasant to think about. But God in his grace has warned us about it beforehand so that we might flee from the wrath to come. So that is God's rule in Revelation. It's true now, even if we can't see it. And one day God's rule will be acknowledged by all, whether they like it or not. So God's rule, uh, secondly, and we'll move through these last three uh, more quickly, God's people. God's people. Who will escape the wrath to come? Well, God's people are pictured in Revelation in a number of different ways. Uh, we, We read them earlier described as the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. In the same verse, uh, the same chapter, they're described as a bride, which is why we sang Psalm 45 earlier. But one unique description in the book of Revelation is not a, not a picture, but a number. And uh, This is what we're going to focus on uh, under this point today. Uh, Revelation 7 talks about 144,000 people. Uh, the same number is mentioned again in chapter 14. So will there be only 144,000 in heaven? Well, the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses certainly think so. They say that only 144,000 people will make it into heaven and the rest will live on a new earth. And they, they, they teach, or at least they taught for a while, uh, that if you lived after 1935, you couldn't make it into the 144,000 who got into heaven because heaven was full and there was a, a no vacancies sign up. So do you, do you see the sort of trouble people get themselves in when they forget that Revelation is a picture book, uh, when they, they try to take these numbers literally rather than symbolically? 
So what does 144,000 mean? Well, 144 is simply the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied by the 12 apostles. It's a way to speak about the church in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And the message is, no one will be missing from God's people. Uh, Revelation 21.12 says that the New Jerusalem will have gates inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And verse 14 says the wall will have 12 foundations and that each of them will be the names of the 12 apostles. So combine those and you get 144. Then 10 is a number of completeness. 10 by 10 by 10 is 1,000. It's the number of complete completeness. And if you multiply 144 by 1,000, you get 144,000. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses might claim that they're interpreting the Bible literally by by saying that 144,000 must be understood literally. But when Jesus says that he is a door... uh, to, to understand him as saying that he is a physical door wouldn't actually be taking the Bible literally. It would be to miss the point. Uh, and, and so to, to, to conclude that there will only be 144,000 people in heaven will be to miss the message. And as well as all that, we're, we're told that, that the number will be a great multitude that no one can number. So to take that second statement literally, you can't understand 144,000 as a literal number. If, it's, if it was 144,000, then, then it could be numbered. It means all God's people will be there. As Jesus put it in John 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So God's rule, God's people... Thirdly, God's place. God's place. Where will these people of God be? Where will we be? To become a Christian means that you'll go to heaven when you die. Is that true or false? Of course it's true. But it maybe doesn't tell the whole picture. In Revelation 21, John sees a vision not just of heaven, but of a new heaven and a new earth, which one day we will live in. Not immediately when we die, but after Jesus comes back, after this world ends. Jesus gives us more than Adam and Eve lost, not less. Adam and Eve had bodies that didn't experience disease. They lived in a garden paradise. It was a physical place with grass you could feel under your feet and flowers you could smell and animals you could touch and water you could swim in. If heaven is less than that, then Satan will have taken something from us. God's purpose for humanity will have been thwarted to some extent. Romans 8 is a favourite chapter of the Bible for many. And it tells us that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Pollution, crop failure, thorns, thistles, they'll all be history. The vision of the Bible is of people living in a renewed world. So when we read in Isaiah about the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat, 
we can take those as snapshots of, of what the new earth will look like. And the possibilities will be endless. People make lists of 101 things to do before you die or 30 places to go before you die as if this will be the only chance we get. But a whole world of new possibilities awaits us. And yet amazing as the new heavens and earth will be, they won't be the best thing. And that brings us fourthly and finally to God's blessing. God's blessing. What was the greatest blessing God's people experienced when they were brought out of Egypt? It wasn't living in the promised land. It was God's presence, symbolised firstly by the tabernacle and then the temple. And the greatest thing about the new heavens and the new earth won't be a world with no disease or sickness or death. Once again it will be God's presence. Revelation 21-22 puts it this way. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. God's presence is no longer restricted to one place. It is everywhere. Uh, Verse 3 of Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what God had promised all along. It's what Adam and Eve had in the garden. It's what God promised Abraham, I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. It's what was symbolised in the tabernacle and the temple and pictured by the prophets. It's what we have to some extent today uh, by the Holy Spirit indwelling us and as we gather as a church. But one day God's presence with us will be a complete and a permanent reality. As verse 7 puts it, I will be his God and he will be my son. He will be my son. That is God speaking about us. We will be loved by God as his own son, Jesus Christ, is. It would seem a blasphemous thing to say if the Bible didn't tell us. But that's the wonder of what Jesus won for us on the cross. Not just that we would uh, somehow scrape into heaven. Not that we would live on the outskirts of the new Jerusalem. But that we would be brought right into God's family. So God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. This is the destiny of everyone who is trusting in Jesus. Is that your destiny today? No matter how old or young you are, no matter how long or short you may have been here, are you trusting in Jesus? If we could only grasp the smallest part of what is in store for us, we would live so differently now. And we would say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Well, having focused on the, the, the last book of the Bible, we want to sing now the last psalm in the psalm book, uh, which is not placed at the end randomly, uh, because in Psalm 150, the book of praise reaches its great crescendo 
uh, which will only finally be heard in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, But even now, as we sing it, we anticipate where all of human history is heading, what all of creation is pointing to. Uh, This is the glory that lies ahead. Psalm 150b, praise the Lord to God your praises in his sanctuary rays and within his mighty heavens. Unto him, O give your praise. Psalm 150b uh, will stand as we sing praise. Mm -hmm.